Welcome to The Vinyl Preacher, your weekly podcast where we talk about the Bible and make a playlist. I'm Matt Cable, pastor at St. Mark's Lutheran Church and Campus Ministry here in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Zach Piss. I'm the pastor of Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, in America's finest and only lectionary podcast on the internet uh, that follows the RCL, the only one, uh, The Vinyl Preacher. And my name is Chris Hefner, and I'm on the podcast today. Uh, I serve as the Lutheran Campus Pastor at Clemson University, which for those of you that might not know, Clemson is the land-grant university of the state of South Carolina. Trace our history back to 1889 when we've been educating some of the South's finest engineers, teachers, and of course all those kids that grow all of the agricultural products that you uh, enjoy every day of your life. We also have a a great tradition here of uh, of being stuck away in a corner of the state that nobody knows where we are. So when you tell them you're in Clemson, they ask where that is, and you tell them in South Carolina, and they still don't quite know. Um, but every now and then, every now and then we show up on ESPN, and the football uh, football people kind of paying a little more attention to us these days. Even though some of us are more baseball fans than football fans, and we don't quite do as well in football lately as we used to. As you know, Matt, uh, Clemson actually was originally, uh, I think it was, was it the Cal- was it Calhoun College, right? It's uh, it's on the the former well, property. No, it, it's always had the name Clemson College, okay. but it is on the property that was belonged to the family of John C. Calhoun, one of so America's you, it, worst politicians <laughs> of all time. Well, but I've heard of them, he was, so he was pretty he was sort of big deal. Sort of like some. Sort of like some people that are in politics these days. He he was a pretty good politician. He just wasn't a very good person. So, you know how some people defend like Andrew Jackson, and they're like he was a man of his time, right? People don't say that about John C. Calhoun. They were like, no, even for a person of his time, he was a real dick. Um. <laughs> well, and, and it's even worse. Um, I mean, he did establish this college, right? And um, but he put in place his cronies to be the persons who would uh, be on the board of trustees. And so those cronies included a guy by the name of uh, uh, Tillman. Uh, his nickname was Pitchfork Tillman because literally he was known to take a pitchfork uh, to the slaves that were under his care. Tillman, um, much like Kerr at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, said that we wasted any energy and time whenever we educated or cared for black people, that they were always going to be the biblical image, hewers of water and choppers of wood, right? And so um, what happened here at Clemson was the main building was called Old Main until the 1950s when it looked like we might be forced to accept integration. And they renamed the main building on campus in honor of Mr. Tillman. So the big controversy we have here at Clemson now is uh, what do you call that building? And, uh, but it's, it's, a pretty bad, it's a pretty bad history. So uh, moving on from there. Starting at the bottom. <laughs> Aren't you glad you invited me to be on with you today? What? Yeah. Uh, hopefully things today uh, on campus are a little, uh, uh, a little better than, uh, than where they have been. Uh, this is a section of the podcast we typically call uh, What's Happening? Uh, so what is happening these days, this week, for you, for uh, for, for Clemson? Well, uh, this podcast will be on the air shortly after we complete the 25th Homecoming Habitat for Humanity House. Uh, for 25 years, Clemson students have spent the 10 days before the university's homecoming celebration building a house on campus. It has been a marvelous experience. It's been a tremendous uh, outpouring of uh, community involvement. Uh, 
Um, if you do the math, that means we've had over 10,000 college students that have worked uh, on these houses. And we literally build the house on campus. There's a big grassy field that is referred to as the front lawn of the university. There are restrictions that nothing could ever be built there. And in that area, the fraternities uh, build these displays. Uh, they build the displays using telephone poles, two-by-fours, and chicken wire, and then little pieces of crepe paper. Yes, it is as bad for the environment as it sounds. But they make these 30-foot-tall tigers, you know, who then chop off the heads of NC State wolves because that's who we're playing this weekend or other kind of things of that sort. And so in 1993... A group of Clemson students uh, came up with the idea of building a, a, a habitat house out there among all of those, uh, those floats. The initial student had won a competition. Uh, which would we would refer to it now as a tiny house competition. He he was uh, he re received national recognition for his design of a tiny house uh, that was built on a couple of occasions in the uh, northeast metropolitan areas, and so he asked about building that same house. That was the initial plan, but as things sort of progressed and developed, it turned into a rather typical Habitat for Humanity house, which are always good, simple, decent housing. So it's grown. It's received tremendous support uh, this year. In addition to the house that's been built on campus there's two other houses being built the student athletes at Clemson who are not always able to work on Bowman Field are building a house of their own and raising the money for that house and then we have a uh, a coach by the name of Dabo Sweeney, who has a, an all-in foundation. And so he donated enough money to build a third house this year. That house is in honor of Deshaun Watson, who played quarterback here at Clemson and now plays uh, for the Texans uh, in pro football. Deshaun grew up in a Habitat house. And so when he was about 11 years old, he moved into a Habitat house with his mother while he was here in Clemson, worked on Habitat projects. And so when he graduated, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Sweeney decided this would be a good way to honor and recognize uh, what Habitat did in his life by making it possible in the life of another family. That is very cool. So what are you doing this week, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing this week, Zach? <laughs> so you got some new books on the internet, so that's exciting. You got some children's books. Cool. I got some books, children's books. That's what I got. Oh, that is so cool. Um, well, did that? Um, can I ask a follow-up question to that? So does that like? Um, I noticed. I've been to the ELC Youth Gathering twice now, and it seems like Campus Ministry always does a. Habitat for Humanity House there. Is that connected to the work that you've been doing at Clemson? It's very much connected to it. Uh, the, the, the first New Orleans gathering, which would have been, what, four gatherings ago, one of the emphases was housing. And so when the ELCA Youth Gathering Interactive Center, they talked about this project that we had done in Clemson and asked if we could replicate that in the Interaction Center at the Youth Gathering. And so we did it in New Orleans. We did it again in New Orleans. That time we built three houses there. Then we did it in Detroit. In Detroit, we framed four houses. Uh, and this past year, we were back down in Houston, Texas, and we did houses there also. So this would be four youth gatherings in which we framed houses. Uh, this last time around, we framed the houses, and then they were used by Lutheran Disaster Response. Uh, to, because there were so many homes destroyed in the Houston area. Initially, we were going to work with Habitat, but Habitat has found themselves in the Houston area helping homeowners rehab houses because there's no oh, reason to build houses when you have so many houses that have been damaged. Sure. So it made more sense if we were building new structures to pass those on to, uh, to the disaster response folks. Okay. Gotcha. 
Well, it always seems really popular. Like the signups go really fast. Um, yeah, we we run out of space for those youth. We get about about six hundred high school kids wow. that work with us on those youth gatherings, and um, it's a lot of fun to teach kids how to drive a nail and build a ball all in thirty minutes. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I think that's my interpretation Zach, you know. of uh, <laughs> of the 25 houses that have been built. I think I would say it differently. 25 houses have been built uh, despite the labor of 10,000 college students. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you might you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I just I wonder, Zach, if you get any um, like you get some of your skill set from that, because I noticed that one of the things that you love to post on social media are your latest home improvement successes? No, Matt, it's it's the exact opposite of that. Even these meager skills did not exist uh, uh, when I was 18 to 22 years old. Yeah, I, I would attest to that. I mean, uh, <laughs> Zach, Zach was always very supportive of the project and mm-hmm. committed to the project and was lifting us up in prayer and maybe would uh, maybe would meet the workers after after the shift was over with a beer. But I, I you know I don't remember a hammer or a piece of wood ever making it. Into Zach's hand. I did. I did. I did two Habitat spring break trips. Uh, oh, that's right. That's and, right. Well, I brought I brought James Lee with me to make sure that I wouldn't be the the worst. You know, by comparison, I wouldn't be at the bottom. You know. We're going back to Jacksonville Beaches yeah. for our Habitat trip this spring, which is one of the trips you took, I think, isn't I, it? I went there twice. We went there twice yes. while I was in college. Sarah Locke is the new campus pastor at uh, Jacksonville State University. She is working really hard to establish a campus ministry there. Uh, She's married to an ELCA pastor, Daniel Locke, who came through our ministry group here at Clemson. So we've decided we're going to go down to Jacksonville Beaches, work with Habitat Houses, and then uh, have a chance to visit the campus ministry there and also St. Mark's where Daniel's the pastor. So if I could tell you one more story from today, there was a young woman that came by the Habitat House today to work at the table. We always have people sit at the table to check people in, and we try to use our Habitat families. It's another way for them to get to know one another. And so this young woman showed up in order to check people in at the table by the name of Mackenzie. Well, Mackenzie is a first-year student at Tri-County Technical College, which is another campus we serve. And uh, Mackenzie was, of course, on Bowman Field when we built her house uh, about eight years ago. Uh, she was four. She was, I guess, in the fourth grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, some of that age, age level. And the thing I remember about her most is that she would stand at the door and meet people when they came into her house, and she would give them tours, and she would walk from room to room, and she would say, "Well, this is my bedroom, and this is my little brother's bedroom." And you realize that Mackenzie had never had a house before. Um, it rained like crazy, <laughs> as it often does as we're working on this house. And so, of course, people are muddy, and they're tracking in mud. And we had one piece of carpet at the door. And so on Saturday, when it was really muddy, Mackenzie would stand there, and she would say, this is my house. Would you please wipe your feet? <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But it just drove home the point, you know, that here we have all these people spending tens of thousands of dollars in a parking space for a football game. Excuse me. I love Clemson football. But here we had little McKenzie, you know, whose life was changed forever because um, people walked by and put $25 in the Habitat house as they were as they were uh, as they were looking at the house. So and she's going to go with me on spring break. Oh, that's the connection. She I talked to her today. I said, go with me on the spring break trip. So wouldn't it be wonderful to take her to, on a spring break trip to build Habitat houses in, in Jacksonville, Florida. So someday, Zach, we're going to be that cool. <laughs> but but 
But have you ever hosted a podcast before? I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know, like, just balancing. If this was podcast like 109, you've only built 25 houses. We've built over 100 hours of just mediocre lectionary podcasts. Well, you know, and, and I am very envious of your skill set. You know, I, it's um, I, I'm you know, I, no, I haven't hosted a podcast, and of course, maybe when your listeners, if we ever get around to talking about the text, people will understand why no one ever asks my opinion about biblical exegesis. <laughs> Well, and the opposite, the opposite is really quite true, um, that I want to make sure and tell the two of you how much I admire this podcast um, and appreciate it. Um, it, it, is a, it is a tremendous gift that you give the church, a tremendous gift you give campus ministry. And uh, so, so uh, you know, 109 episodes, I can't believe that you've been doing it this long for this faithfully. So I, I do want to make sure and thank you for all your work that you put into it. And someday... Uh, we'll get the Knutson Award for you, which is the Campus Ministry Award for Creativity and Risk Taking. Uh, the, the, the nomination letter that I've submitted now, I think four times, uh, you know, says, "What greater risk than to spend two hours of your life every week creating a podcast?" And I wonder if anybody will even turn the damn thing on. <laughs> there, there. It is. Well, you know, people. We've had so many listeners clamoring, asking for you to be a guest. Uh, oh, really? many listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Many listeners. When we, it's a, it's a real, real joy when we get to meet listeners in real life. And, and this summer, I got to meet a number of listeners who really wanted to have you on the podcast. So, so one of our mottos is you got to give the people what they want, uh, oh. and that's what we're doing, doing today. Uh, we won't list those, the names of those lister, listeners. Uh, Matt, what is happening, uh, South Los Angeles? Uh, well, the week of uh, the text that we'll be talking about. Um, I won't even be preaching. I've got Jen Amos Virgos preaching for me. Um, she was the pastor up at Central and Van Nuys and then a Reformation in Pasadena. Um, and now she's uh, taking some classes at, uh, at Cal Lutheran to get trained in, in counseling, which is super cool. So I'm excited to have her preach. I will be in Chicago um, at an organ community organizing um, cohort gathering uh, put together by the ELCA. Um, it's super cool. I took a week-long class at PLTS in May um, with this cohort about community organizing um, from a biblical perspective. Um, and then I guess in the fall, they go and visit different sites. So we will be at Shekinah Chapel um, with Yehel Curry, um, seeing what kind of work that he's doing in the community, um, both community organizing and ministry and all kinds of cool stuff. So um, I really love hearing Pastor Curry preach. And so I love to, I'm excited to visit his congregation. I've never, I know you guys have done that uh, at the LSM gatherings, um, gone to Shekinah. I've never been there. I just hear good things about it from the, the college students that go yeah. in, the, in the winter. So I'm excited to do that. And I get to bring two lay leaders with me. And I always find that when I go to these kinds of conferences, it's always so much better when I bring people with me because then we can talk about it and bring it back. And it's not just, oh, But then you have to talk to other people while you're there, Matt. <laughs> And it's hard for you to brood by yourself in the back. That's true. I can't. <laughs> the other part about that is if you take people with you, you have to go to the sessions. You know, if you go mm -hmm. by yourself, you know, you, you blow them off and uh, you don't go to the important parts. So maybe that's why it's more meaningful, too. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Keeps me accountable for sure. So that's what I'll be doing. What um, how about you, Zach? What's 
What's going on? I'm excited. Um, working with the university is always a mixed bag that helps you appreciate the level of dysfunction in the church because it could be a much more dysfunctional, larger uh, behemoth. And but but recently something came together. Uh, we've connected the past couple of years with the office of it's called Odyssey, the office of diversity, equity, and community engagement. We did some MLK Day stuff last year. Starting for some of those relationships, we were invited and had a meeting uh, a couple weeks ago to have a religious faith spiritual uh, portion of a at, at a at a diversity and inclusivity summit that they have on campus. So what we're going to do is basically host uh, a big interfaith conversation. Uh, and more exciting, the week that this podcast comes out on Tuesday night, uh, we're going to have a dry run. So we're inviting Muslim Student Association and Hillel and uh, the LDS student group over uh, to do that. And we didn't know that was going to happen until last week when, uh, when it all came together. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have ever been, I'm excited about this, this is a little nerdy, been to a meeting where they have a graphic facilitator. I was in Indianapolis last week, and, and lately uh, Lily has been into having graphic facilitators. And I actually fly this person up from Atlanta, and while you're having the meeting, they're creating this like infographic, like this piece of art that's a record of your conversation and stuff, in a gra- like kind of like a graphic novel kind of thing. Uh, what? And, right? Uh, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> I don't always know, like... I'm not like, wow, that really helped me learn. But it's something to look at during the meeting. And everybody says, wow, that's really pretty cool. So I'm making Megan learn how to do that. Megan has an art background here uh, and studied art in college and stuff. So she's going to get two shots at it. We're going to talk about it uh, and try to create like a really cool piece of art as a part of uh, a part of this thing. So I'm excited about that. Is the art then displayed afterwards as a reminder of your event, or is it disposable art that's just for the event and then you're done? I don't know what they do with it. What are you going to do with it? I think it depends on how good it is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell Megan you said that. I think Megan's Megan's open to that possibility. Uh, I think it could be really cool stuff. It could end up in a public space on campus. It could end up in a public space in in one of the places that we uh, occupy. Um, who knows? Matt, do you want to do a, uh, do you want to talk about your daughter at all? Because I've had like 800 people ask me about your daughter. (laughs) You should, you should say something. (laughs) I should say something. Um, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't prepared anything. Um, yeah, so, um, so my daughter Meyer had surgery, heart this past week. You know, when you talk to doctors about it, they're, they're like, oh, it's like a relatively small thing. It's like. It's called a PBA, and it's like this little hole in a blood vessel that's supposed to close when you're born. Um, but because she was born a little bit premature, it didn't close. Um, she hasn't had any other symptoms. She's doing, she's been doing great. Um, but one side of her heart was a little bit enlarged, um, and there was a risk of infection if it wasn't treated. And so, finally, the cardiologist recommended that we go ahead with the surgery when she got close to age two. And what they did was they. They, it wasn't even open heart surgery. They went up. I mean, this is nuts. They went up through. It was. It was a. It was a heart catheterization, right? So they went up through a vein in her leg. Went up. Uh, put some ink in so they could see stuff. Put a little. Put this little plug in, and the doctor told me like, well, it could be made out of, uh, you know, stainless steel and some fabric, and it like reshapes itself to meet that. I'm like, what is this like science fiction? This is like incredible. And then you know, like these surgeons do this every day, right? But for me, I'm like, this is incredible. Like. And there's no way we're doing this 100 years ago, right? Like, this is just, it's amazing. Did you have to get onto a school bus first? Uh, 
with a, a red-haired teacher, and then it like yeah. spun around, and you like went up and got to watch, or? Yeah. No, I wish, right? Yeah. No, I probably don't wish because I'd be terrified. It was the longest two hours of my life for the searches to come back. Um, but uh, no, everything, everything went well. Um, the hardest part has been. Um, kind of keeping her chill over the weekend. She can't do a lot of physical activity just over as she's recovering um, over the weekend. But um, but the surgeon said for the rest of her life, I said, well, she can have restrictions on like sports and stuff because my wife's pretty tall and I just want to make sure that she's got her shot at the WNBA. And, <laughs> and they were like, no, like after this, like her, she should be cured, um, which is just incredible. Like it's just amazing um, what's possible. So yeah, but I want to thank everybody for thoughts and prayers and everything. It was amazing. I just... You know, being a terrified parent, I just kind of put it out there on Facebook. Hey, we'd love some prayers. And it was amazing to see the outpouring of response. And that that really does mean something to you when you're in a, one of those spaces where you're like just kind of hanging on for dear life. So I appreciate it from, from everybody. It makes me always aware when, when something like that goes on in my family or our families, I think it makes us aware of how powerful it is when you simply say to someone, I will pray for you, you know, and to know that they mean that. And and I know, you know, if we if we if we ever get around to talking about Job or, you know, the whole thing about what 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 is the conversation with God about, you know, but the but the you know, the conversation among God's faithful people to sort of say this is this is not a burden I bear alone, you know, so. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It yeah. is. I'm glad yeah. you. Re- I'm glad you received that gift. I mean, it's a very important gift to give. Yeah. You know, to receive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we we are really grateful. We're grateful for the prayers. We're grateful everything went well. And and I talked to you know it's interesting too when you go through stuff like this. I talked about it a little bit in my sermon on Sunday because, like you said, I mean, people are thinking about it and so many people have gone through something right and it, and you you end up having this new kinship right where you can talk about yeah you know what i had this procedure somebody that i love had this thing happen and there's a new level of connection um and so i don't know there's just like there's a deeper awareness of the things that we all go through right yep. so yeah. and homiletically matt uh, <laughs> uh sad stories about babies preach I killed. Hey, you know? I killed two weeks ago. <laughs> I did. I told the story uh, of uh, Zelma was not breathing when she was born, uh, and uh, so there was like this. Oh gosh, I, it was good. It was good. I was proud of myself, man. Uh, yeah, people were super into it. Yep. She's she's hence she has started breathing. Good. So, I'm glad that. Yeah. She's good. Don't worry about it. Her well, I'll tell you both, as, as you get older, you, you have other kinds of things to share with people, you know, as your knees start to go bad and, you know, then you get to that, that old man bladder stage, you know, and then, uh, you know, parts of your body just don't work like they used to. So I, as young people, y'all just realize that your ability to connect is just going to increase as the years go by, you know. And, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if anybody I mean, cares about that stuff, though, <laughs> on an emotional well, level. I, ca- I care. You know? I mean. So, so uh, I had a, uh, I stepped on a piece of glass uh, back in June, and I didn't do anything about it in my foot, right? So over the last four months, it sort of got infected and formed a little callus thing in the bottom of my foot. So th- the surgeon had to cut it out. So I've been walking around with a walking stick the last three or four days, and you know it's just it's just freed me up in a whole new way that I never anticipated. I, I may just go to a walker now and just have it all over with, you know, so that I don't I don't have to go through those uncomfortable stages about do I really need a walking stick or not, you know? And <laughs> and people people are nicer to you when you have a when you have a cane. Do you know that? You know, and they you just gotta, kind of open doors and step aside, you know. You'll get to have so many can, tennis balls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, actually, my, my father-in-law, they won't let him put tennis balls on his because they slide too much. So now they have this new little gripper thing that catches the wood. <laughs> so, so, so now all the hardwood floors in our house have little track marks from where the uh, – if only we had tennis balls. Oh, racquetballs. <laughs> I hope my father-in-law doesn't listen to your podcast and realize I'm talking. He's one of our <laughs> most <laughs> active listeners. Um, <laughs> I mean that very literally, uh, uh, Matt. It's uh, we're we're tri time zones. We're tri time zone this week. Uh, three different time zones. So may I don't know. I guess Nick will have to decide if it's time for the text or not. But maybe we should talk about while we're not talking about other texts because it's uh, Reformation Week for most Lutherans. Yeah, and we're we're not going to talk about the Reformation text. We're going to stick with Lectionary Thirty. Why are we doing that, Zach? It's well. Here's my rationale. I got two part rationale. Number one, I think, uh, gosh, the Bartimaeus story is one of my new favorites. Uh, love the Bartimaeus story, and I want to talk about it. But also because it's the it's the it's the climax of where we've been the past six weeks. All of the stories you've been telling from the beginning of chapter eight on have led us to this place. Um, and I don't like the idea of pulling the rug out from underneath yourself to uh, to tell John eight for the eight thousandth time in a row. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, like if Reformation had showed up on the 21st and it was yet another story about the disciples being dumb, I mean, maybe you could, like, yeah. you could substitute. But not Bartimaeus, what? No, not for Bartimaeus. And why is Reformation text the same text every year? This is a Kevin Strickland question. Um, <laughs> how come we can't have Reformation A, B, and C with a different Reformation text? It's the same seven verses right 31 36 is that seven or five i don't know maybe the narrative lectionary changes up i'm sure it does (laughs) (laughs) we have a lot of vendettas on this podcast kevin strickland the narrative lectionary (laughs) i don't think kevin's old enough to have decided what got into the lectionary i mean he you know he he might he might uh he might pretend to be an old man, but he's really pretty young, you know. So, but that is an interesting question: why the texts are always the same? I, I guess because it's a feast day, and maybe. I, but the lectionary was not just designed for Lutherans, right? So, uh, so maybe nobody else realized that it was going to be used every single Sunday. You know, did our sisters and brothers and other denominations that use the RCL, you know? Say, well, you're not going to use it every week anyway. You know, every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's only one set of texts for all saints, too, isn't there? I think there's. Are there three for all saints? I think there's three, but not on the check. But uh, you know, so that could be that could be a uh, a reason is if uh, you know uh, only the Lutherans in the rooms would have been concerned about there being three different Reformation texts, you know, to do so. Living right. in a kind of ecumenical Lutheran Luther Palian world, it is. Uh, uh, I don't know if we understand as Lutherans as uh, how much other people do not care about Reformation uh, <laughs> Sunday. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> I mean, I always figured it wasn't going to be as big a deal with like Episcopalians, uh, but it's it's like a negative deal. It's it's not uh, not on the radar. Yeah. Well, and I, I haven't been. I mean, last year. We did some stuff with it because it was the 500th, but I've done so much less this year. Like, I just haven't even thought about it. Yeah. In a thousand, we'll do it again, probably, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are y'all, I'm assuming y'all, y'all uh, in Clemson are using uh, using John, using Reformation Day? 
Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they will be. I, I actually will be on a retreat with the college kids. Uh, we're going up to Charlotte, North Carolina for a Region 9 trip to do some community mm-hmm. service projects. So, And Reformation just seems that weekend was just the popular weekend to be. So so I'll be worshiping at Morningstar Lutheran Church mm-hmm. uh, with Naomi Carricker uh, that Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I imagine they'll use Chandler it. just on the podcast. Her husband. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, so we'll be with Naomi. I guess Chandler will be there too. Um, um, but it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, and I've, I've never asked a historical question about at what point did Lutheran congregations um, – Start observing the Reformation every Sunday. I do every every year. Excuse me. I do know that in our and and, and Zach and I grew up, you know, 25 miles from each other or 12 miles from each other. Z- Zach's mother and I were big buddies in high school. We were we were chums. I mean, we were you know. So I've known Zach before he was born. Um, but I do know that in that part of North Carolina, Western North Carolina, you know, the the drive toward Lutheran integrity was so strong. Um, and so Reformation Sunday was always a Sunday when we when we did the unthinkable, which we don't do so much anymore, which is to talk about how great we were and why it was great to be us. Um, now, that part of North Carolina is the part of North Carolina where the Tennessee Synod happened. And so all of the uh, when the North Carolina ministerium began to be a little more um, like um, uh, Mueller, Muhlenberg, you know, to say, well, maybe we could be an innocuous American Protestant church. The Tennessee Synod were congregations in western North Carolina who pulled out and said, no, we will hold to an unaltered Augsburg confession. And uh, that's also the reason also the reason why you get Southern Seminary, because when Philadelphia was a Muhlenberg seminary and then Gettysburg became a Schmucker seminary, the Schmuckerites were a lot more intent on making sure we remain Lutheran and not Union churches or some sort of a reformed church. That also was was the mood in Western North Carolina. So, Zach, your roots, my roots, you know, we have uh, we have strong roots to talk about uh, how important it is to us to, to, to be Lutherans. Uh, um, now, we're, we're talking, Matt, we're talking history y'all can't even relate to in California. We're talking, we're talking history of late, the late 1700s uh, or, and mid-1800s yeah. Carolina in which you get all of that. Um, my grandfather, uh, my grandfather had a book of Concord, which not many lay people do, but he had one. And... Um, the uh, the Book of Concord that he had was published by the Tennessee Synod, uh, and so it's uh, it's it's that old and dates back to that time. So, so for me, Reformation was always a time to sort of make sure that we had that Lutheran integrity, that Lutheran identity, and and held on to it really strong. Which is which is really bizarre given where I am these days in my ministry and my life. I mean, I'm still very very committed to the Lutheran identity, but uh, my opportunities to travel to Germany and talk with folks in Germany and, and other places have just really convinced me more and more that that Lutheran identity is one that opens us up to the variety of uh, religious expression as opposed to sort of closing us down. Um, <laughs> you know, so that it's not so important that we are Lutherans, but it is very important I think that we continue to return to the um, the things that make Lutherans Lutherans and of course <laughs> that's a highly debated topic too you know but uh, yeah. uh, no that is fascinating like so I mean you mentioned California like St. Mark's um, just your stereotypical yeah, California Lutheran church stereotypical. I mean you know we're one of the oldest we're one of the oldest uh, Lutheran churches in, in our synod but we're only 114 I think 114 that's probably kind of young for some of your churches on the east coast right um so and we were founded as like um 
you know, a relatively ethnic Lutheran church, but we're not that anymore. Most of our folks were not born Lutheran, grew up Lutheran. Um, a lot of folks from Belize, so they have um, sort of that British colonial background, uh, Anglican, Episcopalian, some Roman Catholic, some Methodist, um, and they somehow found their way to St. Mark's. <laughs> so this is the, everybody's all mixed up, but they like the kind of, it's, they may not know about, people don't necessarily come knowing a lot about Martin Luther, but they experience something in the congregation that I think is deeply grace-filled and Lutheran in that sense. Um, but it's not rooted in a kind of, I don't know, generational history, right? Which is really kind of interesting. And when I ask the confirmation students, when they come in for the first time, we start talking about Martin Luther, I, you know, well, what, what does the Lutheran in our name stand for? And without fail, they think it's Martin Luther King, right? Yeah, because that's, right, right. I mean, and it makes sense, right? Like, yeah, that's what yeah. you hear about, right? Um, so that's usually our starting place. It's not where we end, but we sometimes start there because that's what the, what the kids are coming in with. Um, and that's, of course, a fascinating story, too, right? I mean, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his father were renamed for Martin Luther in Germany, right? So you get this really fascinating story and um, heritage, not just within Lutheranism, but larger Christianity of what does it mean to reform? What does it mean to go back to um, those core things? So, yeah, I don't know. We, we get a reformation from a different angle. The shameless uh, organization trying to run the church that we know of as Thrivent uh, put out a great, pretty, actually pretty good movie a couple of years ago on um, the day that changed the the world. I think is what it was called. Um, but 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 the at, toward the end of the movie. Uh, Perry, who taught uh, all of us in Chicago, I think, was in, in addition to some other folks, and talked about the connection between what Luther's, Martin Luther said with what Martin Luther King Jr. said. And so there was a definite uh, way of sort of talking about how those things do kind of link up and do kind of hold. And it's interesting, you know, to think about that, because I, I want to believe, you know, that part of the gift of what it means to be in this heritage, you know, is those same sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> Zach and I had a chance to travel this past summer back over to Germany, and um, Luther was born in Eisleben and also died in Eisleben. And we know that he was in Eisleben um, at an inopportune time health-wise, and we also are pretty sure, or people say, that if he had been at home with Katie, the remedies that she would have offered him because she had learned how to deal with his illnesses might have prolonged his life. Uh, he had gone to Eisleben in order to make sure that the princes did not close down the school. <laughs> and in particular, the school was co-educational. And so whether or not Luther is this big champion of what it means to be caring for females in addition to male students, at least the tradition in Eisleben was he died while back there making sure that the school stayed mm. open. And so wow. a couple of spring break trips we took over there, we helped do some of the remodeling work on that old Luther school there in town. But, uh, but if it is indeed accurate uh, that he died because he was away from home, he died because he was uh, in Eisleben in order to make sure this school stayed open, yeah. um, which is a great gospel uh, message and story. I mean, it, it, if yeah. we ever get around to talking about Mark, you know, Jesus is making a sweep toward <laughs> Jerusalem. And what does he say over and over again, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what it means to follow me. The text from last week, what it means to follow me, of course, is to die. That was the, I guess that got left out mm. um, between week three and four. But, uh, um, but if that's true, then that then again, does that is that not what it means to be Lutheran, to be mm -hmm. sacrificial in that way, to be caring in that way? Yeah. Let's forget about the, you know, the things that Luther said. Um, not, not forget about it as far as uh, they aren't important, but let's let's make sure we call attention to what Luther did with his life, perhaps this last thing he did with his life, which says which speaks volumes about what we as Lutherans ought to be about and ought to be doing. 
So, Matt. Yeah. Job. George. <laughs> oh, I just want you to know I've been listening to um, the song You're Welcome from Alana all week <laughs> to prepare for mm-hmm. that Job 38 reading uh, that was last week. This one, not nearly as fun. Not really no. No. Oh. Have you read it? No, I've not read it. <laughs> so it's like the denouement of Job, right? So uh, Job uh, is like, here's here's what I think. Job answers the Lord. He says, "Oh yeah, you're right. I didn't know what I was talking about." <laughs> and then Job restores, or the Lord restores the forces of Job, and he gets uh, twice as much as he had before. He gets uh, a lot of kids again. Great. I'm sure that adds up somehow. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. So he gets all his stuff back. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, it's a fine kind of ending to the story, given how strange and wild and woolly Job can be and and is earlier. It's kind of a it feels a little bit too neat um, for some of the themes that we were exploring earlier. Um, So maybe it's tacked on. I don't know. But I also don't know how you how you preach this one. Um, What you what you do with this. Right. Um, Because it could take that um, unfortunate angle. We were talking about Job as being a kind of anti karma book. Right. It's not just, oh, you get what you you get what you deserve. That's that's how everything works. But it almost seems like it ends that way. Right. Like Job stayed the course. And so, hey, he got rewarded. Well, that seems to upend. That undermines everything we were talking about for the last three weeks. So I think somehow you gotta you want to avoid that. Um, I think one angle, if we're if it's a Reformation Sunday and we're thinking about what Reformation means, there is a piece in here where Job um, repents. And what does it mean for Job to to repent? Um, I think that's um, you could explore that a little bit um, and what that what that looks like. Um, What's the before and after, you know? And you almost could talk about, um, I guess I was talking about my, my family's experience last week and maybe the before and after of going through something like that, right? The before and after of going through um, uh, any experience of suffering. What, is that, what does that look like? Um, you got to be a little creative with it because Job can wrap this up a little bit too neatly, but if you push it a little bit, there might be some interesting um, pathways in there. That's what I got to do. Well, I think uh, Walter Mickle was gone from Chicago by the time y'all got there, wasn't he? Uh, he was one of my favorite professors. Uh, he spent his life working on the book of Job. And so when I was in seminary, I heard about Job a lot. And he was he really was one of my favorite professors, so I spent more time with him than I probably should have. Um, he was very strong in his assertion that anything that comes after verse 6 in chapter 42 huh. is, a, is an addition. Yeah. And in fact, uh, at one time he told us there were, there were two different editions, sort of like Mark, you know, in the Gospel of Mark where we have a shorter edition. And so, so he's – and part of that, it goes back to Matt, what you're saying, you know, verses 10 through 17, you know, are not consistent in any way, shape, or form with what's said earlier on, with what's happening, right? And so it's just really hard to see it sort of tied together that neatly when we realize that it hasn't been tied together early on. Yeah. If I was preaching on this text on Reformation <laughs> Sunday, which I'm not, we've already established that fact, right? You know, the verse that I would pick up on is, is verse 5, you know. Um, assuming that, that verse 4 is, is a quote, a beginning of what God had said earlier, listen, and I will declare. So that's not Job, but that's God speaking to Job. Yes. Look at that line, I have heard of you 
by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I mean, and I think the tie in there for the Reformation, you know, is that is that Luther insisted, you know, that uh, that it is an experience of God, an experience of God's presence, an experience of God's grace, goodness, whatever it is, that transforms us. And if his tower experience is a, is a is an experience of God as opposed to a thought about God, you know, then I think this does sort of lend itself to a good Reformation text, but certainly something that's worth saying. What's the difference between hearing about God and experiencing God? Go back to your family's experience in your daughter's surgery, right? What's the difference between going to the hospital and sort of praying with somebody before they go into surgery now as opposed to before? I mean, you have heard in pastoral care class the importance of that, but now you hear differently. And so, yeah. so I think that that ending here to Job lends itself to sort of say, you know, what, what is the transformative events that happen in our lives? Um, yeah. What are the transformative events that come to us? Um, and then again, in verse six, the, you know, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes is the NRSV translation. I think mm-hmm. it's the NIV that has a much better translation. I rise from the dust and ashes. Ooh. And so this is almost the suggestion that, uh, the dust and the ashes will not define who I am. Yes, repentance is still there, and then dust and ashes is a repentive indication. But when repentance is over, and when we have accepted, when we've heard God's not with the hear, but but heard God fully, you know, then we rise out of that dust and ashes. Yeah. We rise out of it, and and then we move forward. You know, not yeah. to not to continue to languish in it, but to sort of say, well, this is what I'm going to do now. This is what life is going to be like. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so helpful. Because we hear that, you know, we, we hear repent and we often going down into the dust and ashes. Um, but to hear rise gives it a totally different uh, connotation. And yeah, it's a turning point. And that's a turning point too, um, to move from hearing to, to actually seeing. And what a tie into the gospel. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Sight becomes important. Matt, maybe it's important at the end of Job here to take a step back that we took at the beginning of Job to recognize that Job is not a book of the Bible like the Gospels, um, that it is a piece of literature in particular, uh, right, where we have God doing all sorts of things that don't seem particularly God-like. Didn't we get some, like, hints of divine counsel early on, like, uh, let us uh, make a bet, right? Um, So I think maybe one important part one important move in preaching on on Job here at the end with with stuff that seems so dissonant um, with what we've been squeezing out of the the lemon the past couple weeks is to say that it is uh, is to do some important reframing and and reorienting what this book is um, that it functions in a different way right so questions I have are is like I know we have characters with these names, right? Job's a character, and his family and friends are characters. Uh, and God, I think, in this in this book, acts very much like a character, right? More so than perhaps in like the Torah, right? Um, is yeah, you know, one of, one of the characters is the shortest person in the Bible, right? Sure. His name is Shu. His name is Shuhite. Shuhite. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was letting you. I was letting you find your place, Zach. No, they, no. They do, uh, they do have names. But, but. Um, I think one of the things we've talked about is how human Job is as a book, and what a human ending to put on the book. 
the, for me, a part of the beauty of Job up to this point has been about how like there just isn't sense in the suffering. There's just the anti-karma. And yet to hold this book up and say like our, our strong, our, we are so uncomfortable with that, um, that we've got to stick this bow on it at the end and tie it up really pretty and neat. Well, and, and it's, it's a tendency we always have in, in church, in life, in theodicy, right? The, uh, the theodicy question bedevils us uh, every, at every turn and, uh, um, and probably is the question that, that, that we need to struggle with the most. In my former campus ministry at Michigan Tech, um, uh, in late January, one of our active youth become college student was raped and murdered. And so we changed that, that lint into a, a conversation of a, of a fantastic collection of essays entitled Encountering Evil. And what Encountering Evil does is it takes five different ways of answering the question, if God is all loving, um, why do we suffer? Does God not care? Does God not do anything about it? And uh, and so it's a great exchange between uh, these these four different scholars who then respond to each other. And what what we found by doing that as a Lenten uh, service for us was that among the congregational members, we had people who adhered to each of those five different ways of answering the question. Some more than others, um, but uh, but it was a great way of realizing that that among the faithful in any given Sunday, we all have answers that that Job raises and Job points to. And if when you read through the book of Job, um, and if you put that construct on it, you can again begin to see those typical answers that you have. You know, one of them is, well, if you could see things in the broad enough picture, then you would know it's okay. Uh, one of them is uh, one of Job's friends. One of them is uh, God does this in order to make us stronger, in order to, to somehow uh, make us grow. Another one, of course, is God does this in order to punish us. Elie Wiesel was real popular in his precision, which is one that, that was popularized. Uh, God is the one who suffers along with us. Um, Lutherans tend to gravitate to the notion of, of free, free grace. Uh, uh, Tillichs, uh, we did not fully become who God wanted us to be until we ate of the apple because God wanted us to be persons who chose between good and evil. And so that question of how we answer why bad things happen in the world, why there's horrible things in the world um, – Job is the perfect book to talk about it, and and maybe a summation of of the different theodicy uh, possibilities is a, is a way to bring Job to a conclusion, and even to say you know somewhere along the way somebody picked up the book of Job and slapped those last verses on it, and and it's because it's a statement of what they think. I mean that that last those last verses is is one answer to the question, which is not the answer that's given throughout the book. You know, it's uh, I mean throughout the book. The friends of Job are continually um, trying to suggest that, and Job doesn't doesn't give in. Fun story. I don't know if fun's the <laughs> anyway uh, proper context for that. The copy of Encounter and Evil that that I got from you is currently on its way to uh, a former student of mine, uh, regular listener to the podcast. It's all going to tie together, Tyler Fair. Uh, who is actually Fulbrighting in Mexico right now, Matt. Uh, I'm very proud of Tyler and get to claim him, uh, where he's studying, like, hospice care stuff in, like, southern Mexico, down in, like, Oaxaca, kind of kind of, part of the wow. world. Uh, and so cool. he is interested in the question, so passing on that book to Tyler. Uh, but you're right, Matt, to take about four steps back. Uh, there is a lovely place to connect it here with the gospel. Uh that that now Job sees because sight is what's happening here. We've reached our conclusion. We are at the gate of Jerusalem. Uh, 
Mark's Emmaus Road has is reached its its terminus. Uh, last week, if you recall, the disciples were finding incredibly new ways to say the dumbest things possible to Jesus. After ten chapters, ten full chapters of of Gal- Galilean ministry, they're like, "Hey, we can get this even more wrong." Arguing about who's going to have the the best place, uh, trying to position themselves politically for the new reign, the literal kingdom of God to come, that they might be in positions of power. Uh, and as they're coming to Jericho, that old old city, one of the oldest cities in the world, Jericho, also home to one of the worst restaurants in the world uh, that that I ate at one time. That was awful. Like our tour guide demanded that, like, the, clearly they have a deal where our tour guide took us there with the people who run it, and they get a kickback. I'm sure because it was just a buffet of slop. After like such good food, everywhere we went on the way out to the Dead Sea, we saw the Jericho, hot as just hot in the desert. Uh, anyway, they came to Jericho. And they did a few other things besides eat at the world's worst restaurant, a giant tour trap, tourist trap. Uh, and Jesus and the disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. They've already finished eating their slop. And Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, uh, our good friend Bartimaeus, he began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many, here's the little Greek, little, little Greek uh, uh, treat for you, actually rebuked him, not spoke sternly. They rebuked him, uh, uh, which is what God just did to, to Job, BT dubs. Uh, many rebuked him, ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, uh, Son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, and there's this rule of threes, which works really well in comedy, right? So you set things up twice, and then the punchline comes on the third one. Uh, it's a good preaching, good piece of preaching advice. Rule of threes. Uh, Jesus does not adhere to the rule of three. He doesn't let him get to the third one. He stood still and said, call him here. And so uh, they called to the lion man, saying, him, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And so throwing off his cloak, he leapt up. He sprung up and came to Jesus. Uh, and Jesus is like, what do you want me to do for you? Which is interesting. That's the question that he asked uh, our good friends uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, uh, last week. Uh, what do you want me to do for you? And uh, the blind man said, uh, let me see you again. And Jesus said, Matt, you've been calling it. Go. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on El Camino, on the way. Yeah. Oh. What a story, Matt. There is so much to unpack here. Um, mm-hmm. Here's a couple nuggets. I'm going to throw some nuggets at you before we get to the deep good stuff here. Bartimaeus is the only recipient of healing ministry of Jesus and Mark that gets a name. All right, names are important. We always talk about names. He is the only person who is healed who has a name. Everybody else is the blind man, the lame man, the sick man, almost always men. Um, and his name, is it weird that his name is like... He's son of Timaeus, which is basically what Bartimaeus means. Like, it's why is oh, this connection to oh, the father so, so oh, important for Bartimaeus? Matt, we, we on this podcast, <laughs> we on this podcast have hit it a number of times when the text, when the English translation goes out of its way to translate uh, and not translate a text. So it's like Peter, who was called the Rock, but it's just the text. The Greek is actually just Peter because it means Rock, right? Like, uh, yeah. So you, you may read this and you may think to yourself, that's what's happening here. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. No, the Greek text repeats his name, uh, right? He is Bartimaeus. And then they break it out and say, that is to say, son of Timaeus. Uh, 
Oh, super interesting. He's the son of Timaeus. Uh, Timaeus is not a Hebrew word, you may notice, or uh, uh, it doesn't sound very Hebrew, does it? Um, so likely of Greek uh, origin, first of all. It's a bizarre uh, uh, pushing of things uh, together. Uh, but, Matt, well, before I get there, because I'm going to deep dive on it, and that's where my good news is, uh, there are some theories uh, because Jesus, uh, or this is like uh, the babies, when Jesus picks up the little children and keeps on walking, doesn't put them down. Again, here Jesus heals Bartimaeus, and immediately Bartimaeus regains his sight and followed him on the way. He keeps walking, but Bartimaeus does not appear, uh, the name Bartimaeus does not appear again in the Gospel of Mark. So there are, there are theories that he remains with Jesus. Uh, we all know that in the, uh, the scene where Jesus gets arrested, there's one of the greatest characters in all the Gospel. Uh, are you familiar with that, uh, Reverend Christopher Stohevner? Uh, no, I'm not. In the Gospel of Mark, there is a streaker. Oh, yes, there's a streaker. <laughs> right? He loses his cloak, which... Yes. Um, the streaker. I love the streaker. Uh, so throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Uh, mm. oh. They grab his cloak and he runs away naked. Uh, we talked about the ending of Mark. Let's look again at the ending of Mark. Uh, the women come to the tomb at Mark, and what's waiting for what's waiting for, uh, for the women in the tomb at Mark? It's not empty at Mark. There is a young man dressed in a in, in dazzling white sitting in the tomb. If you are looking for what the process of baptism in the early church looked like, one you were baptized naked, and then you put on uh, the baptismal gown, the robe. Uh, Bartimaeus, the last person on the train, right, is the first baptized uh, uh, Christian, mm -hmm. is the argument you could make here, uh, which I think becomes really important. This is the transition, right? We're moving with this story is the very last of Jesus' Galilean ministry, and next is Jerusalem as you begin chapter 11. Bartimaeus is the last one on the train, which becomes important. You ask, Matt, why is it important that he's the son of Timaeus? Well, as all of us who are well-read in the works of Plato remember. Uh, <laughs> all of us? All of us. Philosophy major. Matt okay. is the only philosophy major among us. We didn't read much Plato in civil engineering at Clemson. Uh, John C. Calhoun, not, a, not big into Plato. Not big into Plato, yeah. Plato has a cosmology, uh, right? His, his understanding of the universe is called Timaeus. Uh, it's a, we think it, uh, I'm stealing all of this from Gordon Lathrop's book, uh, Holy Ground, which is his cosmology, and he starts by talking about Bartimaeus. But Timaeus was a philosopher, the character in the, in the work is called Timaeus, and he's a philosopher, and it's all about trying to, to explain the universe. And there's this really uh, critical story that happens in the very middle of Timaeus, uh, which might I remind you again, this story is happening in the middle, in this uh, in-between space between the first part of the Gospel of Mark and the second part, where uh, Timaeus and the philosophers are talking about how important it is to see, uh, that, uh, that for, for Plato to understand the universe, uh, you've got to see the stars. And that leads us down the road of asking the question of, of meaning and, and being and all those sorts of philosophy major questions. Uh, and they walk past a blind beggar on the road. And, uh, and Timaeus basically says, like, what is this guy crying about? He's begging on the side of the road. He doesn't even understand how bad he has it. He'll never see the stars. Uh, he's crying because he can't do the day-to-day -day stuff, right? He'll never be like a fully actualized human because he can't see. And so here we go. 
We're in the Gospel of Mark. In the middle of Mark, uh, Jesus uh, is walking down the road and there's a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. And we've been doing messianic secret stuff, all gospel. And the blind man shouts out, Jesus, not just Jesus, right? Like Jesus, yeah. comma, son of David, have mercy on me. The blind man is the only man who can see. Oh, woo. Mm. Isn't it the only time also that Jesus is called Son of David as opposed to Son of Man in Mark's Gospel? Mm-hmm. A little Gordon Lathrop quote for you. Indeed, the youngest and newest member of the Christian assembly may be wiser and more insightful than Peter and all the other leaders. Love it. I love it. One of the things that we've talked about on the podcast before, Matt, and I talk about with students who want to get this nerdy with me, is we had Ben Stewart. We're mentioning lots of Chicago uh, professors here on the podcast, current worship professor, uh, liturgy professor up in Chicago, came down, did a spring break with us in the desert on our identity as phototropic liturgical beings. And we did all these sessions on the elemental stuff, right? And we had a session on trees. And one of the things that Ben lifted up was that Christianity, unlike most major world religions, lacks a center of the universe. We lack an axis mundi. Uh, that for Muslims, uh, they have... Um, Mecca. Mecca. They have Mecca, right? The, the temple in Judaism, uh, the booty tree for Buddhism. For Christianity... Uh, which is always a which which was one of my reflection pieces on going to to Jerusalem, uh, in Israel, Palestine, is that those are important places, but they are not the center of the universe. Uh, instead, the center of the universe for Christians is uh, is all over the place. It, the cross that's the Lutheran insight. If we're going to dive back into Reformation stuff here, is that the cross is not stuck in in time and space, but is marked on the foreheads of of all Christians, so that each of us becomes the center of the universe. Not for self-serving reasons, but if I'm trying to orient myself towards the center of the universe, I must look to my neighbor. That's the place that is uh, is our axis, Mundi. And so for where Ben took it was with every tree is the cross. Um, and so that way of, of opening ourselves up to seeing the center of the universe all around us. And this... Uh, this 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 gospel just I think preaches that right that the center of the universe, uh, the axis mundi is an anti mundi, um, that to see you got to be blind. Um, gosh, I love it, Matt. I love it, and I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. No, I love that. That's that's fantastic. Um, so many great little literary things going on here too son of Timaeus son of David parallel uh, he begins the blind beggar begins uh, he's by the roadside he's road adjacent and then by the end of the story he's on the road right like he goes from being by the road to being on the road which is like I mean just and what a just I mean just these just little just these little subtle literary things right are just really really cool um, I'm struck by the fact that he so he throws off his cloak he springs up and he comes to Jesus but he's still blind at that point right so, like, how does he find his way to Jesus? Are people, I mean, and you got to use your imagination, like, you could either use some imagination, like, maybe people are helping him, but maybe there's also that emphasis on, like, he's calling you, so that you have that move from hearing to seeing once again. Um, I don't know, I mean, there's something to explore, right? Because we just, you, you read that, but but he's still blind, like, how does he, how does he do that? Um, just, oh, so, and so many good, like, like if you wanted to have a refrain kind of line, um, there's so many there's so many places in right. Take heart, get up. He's calling you. Um, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, it's just so many good, just so many good things. So so much good stuff. Yeah. 
it's also true that uh, he's one of the few that follows, right? I mean, most of the people that are healed are returned to their families, understandably so, or go or sent away. I mean, you talk about the messianic secret, but as you said, that what I like that line, the last one on, he's he's there a part of it. But but um, you yeah. know, is it, it as we get closer to the to Jerusalem, is it important that people, you know, not only come to that awareness, but but are the the ones. That, that see, I don't know, maybe y'all know, he, he, here Jesus puts, says, go, your faith has made you well, right? <laughs> and I know he talks about the faith of the, uh, the Seraphonician woman. Um, you know, is, is there anything there about the notion that it's faith that made him well? I mean, Jesus is the actor, you know, so you can't make, you got to make sure that, that somehow uh, Artemis doesn't get credit for his being made well. It's not his faith that made him well. Jesus is the actor. But is, but is there something there that... Um, uh, and, and there's another the, the blind story that began this period is back in the eighth chapter, isn't it, or something? Uh, where Jesus it's like it bookends the whole thing here, yeah. and if you don't read it, you miss the end of the story. You missed the other book yet. I, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. So, so again, I, from now on, Reformation Sunday, year <laughs> two. I'm, I'm this, right? But, but, but again, the notion there that that uh, you know that that uh, you know the the, the what is it? What is it? What, what does this say about what it means to, to for to, the role of faith in being made well? You know, um, um, you know, faith. Surely, faith isn't a magic wishing wishing wand that that takes away our our infirmities, right? But but when I think about that word, well, your faith has made you well. My faith makes me well, even when you know I continue to have aches and pains and and scratches, right? Yeah, yeah. Through what that means, we're saved by faith. What does that What does that mean? I mean, there's yeah. Take that line and explore that. Uh, well, I mean, Sunday. Reformation Sunday, you know, I mean, you can, yeah. and I think we have right. to be careful that we don't get into the sola fide thing too quickly with Luther because it's a lot more complicated than that. But certainly, you know, you can um, you can talk about what it means to be, you know, for faith to be the thing that that that, that drags us or drags us kicking, yeah. screaming into this new vision of the world and you, this new awareness of the world that we need to have. They don't call him yeah. son of David when they enter Jerusalem, right? What do they say to him when he enters Jerusalem? Is it Hosea? Hosea in the mm-hmm. highest, but do they call him son of David when he goes? I don't think Jerusalem? so. Nope, son of man again. So going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. So. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David. But that doesn't really, it's not the same. Uh, for well, it's healed. Is the, Sozo is the word. Uh, saved, healed, preserved, rescued. Rescued. Whew. Which has so many implications to talk about what it means to be rescued or to be, you yeah. know, opposed to just being made well, you know. Um, yeah. I, one, of the, one of the things I love, one of the things I miss about parish ministry is the, the confidence that comes from being with someone who's in their 80s, 90s, sometimes 70s and 60s who's facing death. Um, and, and to realize that there's a confidence there and a calmness there that, that uh, a wellness that's, that's, uh, that's dawning from on high. One of my predecessors here is a gentleman by the name of Gene Copenhaver who discovered two weeks ago that he has stage four cancer and, and was talking to some of his former students who are now themselves retirees and saying, well, um, I hope the treatment will work, but if not, you know, I'll, I'll, I will be well, I will be rescued. And so mm-hmm. um, not, not some simplistic notion of what it means to go and be with Jesus and have a great time, but it's a, a, mm-hmm. a confidence that, that sleeping with our ancestors is not such a bad thing when the ancestors, you know, are, are include Bartimaeus, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Zach, if you've got that Greek, you're looking at Greek words there. Yeah. What's the re, it says, I was struck by this reading at this time, that it says immediately he regained his sight as if he had it before and had lost it. Um, is that a correct? Does the, does the original Greek have that connotation that it's regained? In 51, right before that, it's le- it's a anablepo, so like see again. Yeah, mm. and it's a version yeah, of, uh, of, of anablepo. Uh, there yeah. again, immediately he re-received his sight. Because we hear about, sometimes there are characters where it's like this man who's blind from birth, but it, the connotation here seems like he, he, had, he had sight and lost it. Like yeah. he had it's something that, that, had been, that has been lost um, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. But that, that's kind of an interesting, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. Well, that would be interesting if he has sight and loses it, then take that back to the whole thing that we've been dealing with with the disciples' blindness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, we are Lutherans, not Baptists. You know, the what's the Baptist word of backsliders? You know, people who mm-hmm. lose their faith. You know, kind of slip away from that. I mean, there could be some interesting things to play with there. Once saved, always saved was a popular thing. You know, in, in my my neck of the woods in North Carolina. But uh, what would it mean to say that if that we've lost our sight? So. I, I never noticed that, man. But I think you're right. See again. So he, he, you know, I have nothing to contribute to that. I'm just. It's a, it's a, it's a great idea. I'd love to hear, Pastor. I'd love to hear more about that on Sunday. If you could uh, write that sermon early and send it out to me. I'll uh, gladly uh, give you credit. I don't so, think Mark does not have the man born blind. I don't think the blind man oh, in chapter okay. eight is not born blind. It's just a blind man. So, okay. So there you go. Uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff there. Preach on Bartimaeus. Um, revolt. No, preach on Job. Preach on Job. Preach on Job. Challenge yourself. If you haven't, if you have not preached on Job, you need. You, everyone needs to do it. You know, there's uh, with all the suffering in the world. I mean, you know, yeah. the 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 rejection of why the suffering's there. The if the hurricanes that we're experiencing are somehow tied into global warming that we're responsible for, I mean, we're, is part of the rejection of global warming a refusal to admit our own culpability and the evil things that happen in the world? I mean, I think there's just all kinds of ways to, to look at what's going on in Job, the, the sense of what it means to, to, be, to be accused of a, a crime, to be accused of something that maybe you didn't do, but then how do you respond? you respond angrily or do you respond by saying, you know, what has happened in the life of this person that that something needs to happen right um when um so anyway i, th- I think you got to preach on job because there's just too many things going on right now that make it a an interesting time to talk about uh um why bad things happen and and to what degree are we responsible for them ourselves as opposed to blaming god all the time and it comes to the easy answers you know uh everything happens for a reason and you get richer in the end so um <laughs> it's a good Not stewardship season for folks <laughs> you know this is a good time to to really uh Really Matt, what? You can't, you can't confuse people when you're trying to ask them to up their pledge by 1% for next year, right? So, <laughs> Oh, Matt, what are you listening to? What am I listening to? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm just going, I'm going super obvious this week. I'm just mm-hmm. going super obvious. All the, all the great sight songs. Uh, Jimmy Cliff, I can see clearly now. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Who. I can see for miles. Mm. Uh, since uh, since I live here in Southern California, where it never rains, uh, CCR. 
have you ever seen oh have you ever seen the rain which is also a nice one for job right because job has now seen the rain mm-hmm. uh he's seen the rain coming down and so you might ask if you've ever seen that and then um this is a terrible song, but it took over the world one summer. And since we were talking about See Again, uh, how about Wiz Khalifa and Charlie Puth? See you again from that Fast and Furious wow. movie. Wow. Matt, I am so... I am shocked. Uh, I want to say. Um, there is, I think, weeks to talk about sight uh, or, or the easiest weeks to find songs for The Vinyl Preacher because <laughs> there are a million of them. But Matt, how did we not put City of Blinding Lights on there? Oh, wow. <laughs> the the entire purpose of this podcast really secretly is to turn Zach into a YouTube fan. So I appreciate. Wow. Amazing. City of Mining Lines. But I'm not going to put it on there. Because um, <laughs> uh, I didn't listen to it. I figured you'd pick it. So I didn't need to listen to it to see if it's worth being on the podcast and you'd have more information and context. I'm going with Etta James. Uh, I'd rather go blind. Uh, Etta James, I'd rather go blind. Um, gosh, there is so much to choose from. Also, I am going to go with, uh, picked up one at the last minute here, off of the 2017 The National album, off of, uh, um, oh gosh, it's a good album. What's the name of it? Sleep Well, Beast. Whew. Uh, the System Only Dreams in Total Darkness was the, the, the lead single off of that album. Uh, which kind of gets at it. This system only dreams in total darkness. Uh, and finally, Matt. Yeah. Matt, there are so many songs you didn't put on there, right? Yeah. Like you should have put Bruce's Blinded by the Light you know, on there, uh, which you well, didn't do. Well, not, I mean, I was thinking that was more like, um, I'm going to save that for when we do Saul Blinded on the Road to Damascus, you know, because oh, he okay. gets blinded. Here he like regains. I got I got my reasons, man. I, got I thought reasons. we boycotted Axe. I didn't think we did Axe on this podcast. Um, you can't anymore. Oh, I, um, gosh, the Bee Gees. I can't see nobody. Um, but I'm gonna go with uh, Mandolin Orange, up and coming band. Actually managed by or on the label of a friend of mine. Uh, I grew up with in Lincoln County uh, a Lutheran who did all kinds of Lutheran youth stuff with Jimmy Ryan's uh, label Five Head Entertainment uh, Mandolin Oranges My Blinded Heart I will tell my wife of that connection she's a huge Mandolin Orange fan yeah uh, Jimmy did not did not know that that the rhymes was uh, a Lincoln County boy so the the, the contributions I would make go back to Job, okay? And the, and the one that just came to me is, and y'all may be too young to remember Johnny Cash's version of the song Hurt, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was a Nine Inch Nails, wasn't it initially? Yeah. But, uh, but I love that image. You know, I, I, I cut myself today to see if I still feel, you know, and, and just that, that uh, sometimes we excuse suffering and we, we stay away from the things that cause us those pains and aches and, you know, but, but again, maybe they're the things that make us more, make us more human, you know. And, and once I started thinking about Johnny Cash, I thought about a, a tearful song for me. Uh, he did a song with his daughter, Roseanne Cash, entitled September When It Comes. Um, oh, yeah. One of the things that that uh, uh, is approaching for me is uh, stepping out of uh, my my current position. I've I'm too old to sleep on the floor and eat pizza three nights a week. And so when I hear Johnny and Roseanne Cash sing about September when it comes, as an acknowledgement of the the end of life sort of things that come our way, um, but that but that there that 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 it'll be an okay greeting. It'll be an okay sort of thing when that happens. Hmm. 
And if I could throw in one more, actually, a, a former guest on the podcast, uh, a Clemson graduate, um, uh, Christina, Murray, Christina Murray, who was actually Christina. just did a couple of dates last weekend out here in Colorado, and I did not make it to them because I'm not, make it there. not a great. But human, she has a new but. she has a new album out, but but what, her first album include included the song "The Day That Georgia Ran Dry," uh, "The Day That Georgia Ran Dry." And what was painful about that song, it was really about her father's death, but the, the two references she makes in there is the day her mama cried and then the day that Georgia ran dry. And I think we have to remember, uh, Bartimaeus doesn't seem to have family, uh, but Job certainly did, is, is the way in which the things that happened to us happened to so many other people too. And so mm-hmm. I love that song of Christina Murray's to, to sort of remind me of, uh, of how the adversity that I feel um, is not mine alone. Um, I'm not the only one that suffers from this, and I'm certainly not the only one either then that can be redeemed by this. In other words, the, 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 the notion that someone else is carrying that burden with me is really important. So, so those would be my three songs that I would add to your playlist, which have nothing to do with sight and seeing, but uh, have everything to do with hurt and harmfulness to me. Yeah, no, those are wonderful. You know, as we wrap up the book of Job, uh, maybe a fun thing we could do one time is, I think if any artist... Uh, we've had a lot of Johnny Cash on the past couple weeks, in part, I think, because maybe Johnny Cash is uh, the official artist of the Book of Job. Yeah, have you ever listened to the, um, it was actually a piece on uh, This American Life where they did all three versions of Ring of Fire. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. his, uh, his mother-in-law sang it first before she was his mother-in-law, and she really sang it as a, a warning to June and to Johnny about how they were going to burn in hell for this <laughs> love affair they had. And then, uh, and then June did it also in some in some sense as a as a sense of fear and trepidation. You know, I I wish I could stay away from this thing. Of course, then Johnny remade it, and part of the theory is that he remade it so that he could, you know, kind of take away some of the attention that his his mother in law, who is a very fundamentalist Christian. So when he did it, he talked about the undeniability of of uh, and the wonderful of what it means to fall into that ring of fire. So, you know, he really does capture you know a lot of what it means to be human and how we interact with each other. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to learn more about Johnny Cash, a good place to visit would be Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which happens to be where the LSM Gathering will be happening over New Year's, December 29th to January 1st, 225, includes four days, three nights, uh, home meals, but one, going to be fantastic. You can sign up for that there. I'll be with you. Hey, Matt's not... Matt's got some crap about, like, I'm on vacation or something. Family time. Sorry, man. Sorry. I'm excited, though. Bring your family to Memphis. And when you do it as a church trip, the church pays for your travels. You know, that's what I do, man. (laughs) Tax write-offs. Someday. Someday. We're hoping some students to recruit them last night. I know. They're excited. I talked to Chantel the other night when the council met. Um, They're excited. Uh... Chris, you got to listen to, if you've not yet, you should listen to Brent Cobb. Uh, Brent Cobb. Brent Cobb is a guy you're going to like um, who uh, has some good stuff. Uh, he has this song called Down in the Gully, which is about a, a moonshine still that turns out to be a pump house, or is it? I don't know. It's fun. Uh, and then, Matt, I have one more. I have a plug. I have a recommendation. Have I said this before? I'm really enjoying the Netflix show Norseman. 
N O R S E M E N. Maybe that's a good Reformation if you if you are or are, are Lutheran Norwegian. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's like a cross between Vikings, Game of Thrones, and Monty Python, uh, and it is fantastic. The other night they had a great line on there uh, where they it's just the driest stuff ever, which I love. Uh, it's like uh, it's like I always say, you know, uh, you keep your friends close and your enemies uh, a little further away. <laughs> <laughs> you know they always say nine out of ten t- ten fears are unfounded oh. <laughs> the, the villain loses his hands in the first season spoilers and they get the finest uh, the finest it's like the 8th century uh, CE the finest uh, prosthetics makers in the village make him a new hand and it's a wooden spoon on one hand and a stick finger hand on the other. It's just like five <laughs> sticks stuck together. And they're like, hey, you see, you eat with this spoon, then with this hand and the other hand, uh, it functions just like a normal hand, except the fingers are stiffer. <laughs> it's just the most beautifully dumb, dumb thing ever. They have a slave from Rome who's uh, who wants to make their village the cultural capital of Scandinavia. It's... Uh, <laughs> He melts down all of their armor to build an art installation and stuff, and then they get ravaged by a pillaging force from a local village. Um, it's you've, amazing. You've made, a, you've, you've made it so attractive, I can hardly wait to start watching it, Zach. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, uh, this has like been another episode of Zach's Netflix recommendations. That's right. People, you got to give the people what they want. They want to know. <laughs> the new Doctor Who's really good. The new Doctor is actually really good. You should watch it. You watched uh, it, yeah. It's yeah, good. yeah, we're into it. She's good. She's better than Capaldi, and I was, I was a little disappointed by Peter Capaldi when he played Doctor Who because I had incredibly high standards because I liked Peter Capaldi, I liked the Doctor, but it didn't work. It just didn't work. Um, but first female Doctor Jodie Whittaker, uh, she's real good, uh, and it's the real fun stuff, right? It's it's a Mayus Road. I'm gonna tie it together, and then we'll end. I promise, dear listeners, who's stuck into this. Uh, I really like to take take to to. To, to you know Donald Trump Jesus I like to take him literally and seriously but sometimes both or neither I don't know um, but I love on Emmaus Road where Jesus asks the disciples about what's happened uh, and it appears that perhaps Jesus does not know what has happened right I don't think he's I don't think it's a quiz like a pop quiz uh, what if Jesus doesn't know who he is uh, and there's this thing that normally happens in Doctor Who when they get a new doctor the doctor regenerates and it's the same person, but there is a process that happens where they don't really know who they are yet because who they are has not yet been fully formed, which is kind of like working with college students, right? Uh, where there's this thing and there's lots of fun jokes where they're like, yeah, I think I'm good at this, or I used to be, or, well, maybe I'll be good at this. Uh, trust me, everything will be fine. Gosh, I love that process of formation of not knowing exactly who you are. So as we close Mark's Emmaus Road, who knows exactly who we are or who this Jesus is? Only that they might show up in the darkness and thus ends the sermon. Well, it's your Martin Luther quote about the darkness of faith. <sighs> it is. Uh, I don't know where I found it, uh, but I did. It's on, in his uh, commentary on the tabernacle in the Torah somewhere where he says, God dwells in the darkness of faith where no light can overcome it. Uh, whew. Gosh, it's so perfect for those of us who can't see nothing. Mostly myself. All right, Matt, we may have broken the record. <laughs> <laughs> what record is that? Uh, record is length, that, yeah. Lengthwise. Well, it's uh, it's 
Finish this off, Zach. <laughs> it's been real. Real boom.